Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Opening question for you. How does prayer work? How does prayer work? Think about that for a second. What happens when a finite creature like us turns their attention to the eternal creator and asks for something? What happens? Is there real power in asking God for something? Is it possible to know that our prayers are actually effective? If so, what's the determining factor that says this prayer will be answered, but this one's a no? Is the determining factor how many times you ask or how many people you recruit to pray with you? Is it how hard you concentrate in prayer, how long you keep your head bowed? Is there a secret to this? Is there a a formula that we need to follow? In my experience as a pastor, I found that there are all kinds of opinions among Christians about how prayer works. Some people don't think it works at all. Some don't have any consistent, discernible prayer life to speak of. And I've yet to meet one single Christian who says, you know what, yeah, I'm really satisfied with my prayer life. It's just something we all seem to realize we don't do enough of. So no matter who you are this morning and what you think about prayer, we have a lot to learn about this subject. There's another important question we need to ask about prayer because it's going to come up in our, our passage for this morning, and that is how do our prayers blend in with God's sovereignty over all things? If he sovereignly rules all things, how do our requests fit in with that? Now, if you're a student of American history, you're probably familiar with the story of the pilgrims who in the year 1620 sailed across the Atlantic Ocean aboard what ship? Good job, history buffs, the Mayflower. And they landed in Plymouth, Massachusetts. And if you know anything about their story, you know how heartbreaking that story is. The folks on board that ship were theologically like us. They were Calvinists, products of the Protestant Reformation that had spread from Switzerland to England. Politically, they were separatists, convinced that the differences that they had with the Church of England at that time were irreconcilable, and so they had a passion to separate themselves from all of the trappings and traditions that went with a spiritually dead, state-sanctioned church. They were, without a doubt, devout Christians. They simply wanted to establish a place in the new world where they could be left alone by government to worship as they saw fit. And by the way, they were people who planned carefully. As they thought about their trip to the new world, they looked at what supplies that they would need. They studied up on the land to which they were headed, and they were a praying people. We know this from their journals. They were asking God to protect them, to guide them safely across the ocean, and to help them to establish this new settlement. But for some reason, things did not go as they planned for or asked for from God. In fact, from the very beginning, almost nothing went right, but they would not be deterred. And so once they got going, they prayed themselves across the Atlantic Ocean during these late autumn storms. And after more than two months on the sea, they unfortunately arrived at the onset of a New England winter. And they watched helplessly as roughly half of the 102 original passengers died that first winter. Starvation. Exposure, disease, if it wasn't for the help of the native Wampanoag people, none of them would have made it. So why did this happen? 
These were a people that loved Jesus. These were a people whose theology was right on. They trusted the Lord and they sought his faith with, faith with much prayer, yet they suffered and they died in droves. Why? Had God abandoned them? No doubt they were asking some of these same questions, weren't they? So earlier I asked, do you know how prayer works? Here's actually a better question. Do you personally have a theology of prayer? What I mean by that is, do you have a systematic understanding of prayer that's, first of all, rooted in Scripture? Secondly, that it takes God's sovereignty in account? And third, is confidently lived out in your walk with Jesus in both good times and bad? Do you have a theology of prayer? Grab your Bibles. Let's go to Romans chapter 15. We're going to finish chapter 15 this morning, and that means we only have one chapter left, and I believe just two more messages in our study of Romans. I know. Hard to believe. God is good, right? Let's actually back up to verse 22. We'll read the verses that we, we covered last Sunday, and then we'll look at these final four verses in this chapter. So Romans 15, beginning in verse 22. Here's what Paul says. For this reason, I have often been prevented from coming to you. Those are the believers in Rome. But now, with no further place for me in these regions, and since I've had for many years a longing to come to you whenever I go to Spain, for I hope to see you in passing and to be helped on my way there by you when I first have enjoyed your company for a while. But now I'm going where? To Jerusalem. That's an important piece of our message for this morning. For now, I'm going to Jerusalem, serving the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make a contribution, right? Paul's been collecting this financial gift for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. Yes, they were pleased to do so, and they were indebted to them. For if the Gentiles have shared in their Jewish spiritual things, then they are indebted to minister to them, the Jews, also in material things. Therefore, when I finish this and I put my seal on this fruit of theirs, I will go on by way of you to Spain. I know that when I come to you, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. So, of course, let's go back to our map. We've been looking at this for a couple of weeks, and you see a couple important things there. So that you know what Paul is dealing with here as he makes this decision to go back to Jerusalem. The yellow dot is where he is sitting as he writes the letter to the Romans. That's the city of Corinth. To the west is Rome, the red dot. And further west, even off the map, is where Spain is. So his desire, remember, he had some tough choices to make. He says, I long to come to Rome to visit you, to have fellowship with you, and I want to build a base of operations in Rome so that I can eventually take the gospel even further to the west of Spain, to a place who haven't, uh, people who haven't heard the name of Jesus. But now he says, there's a greater thing on my heart. God has put on my heart to go back to Jerusalem. Where's Jerusalem? The blue dot. So you can see he's going a 1,000 miles in the, in the wrong direction, the opposite direction of his passion to get to the west, to go back to Jerusalem. Why? Well, he made a promise, remember? Made a promise to remember the poor. And the saints in Jerusalem were struggling. But even larger than that, he had a desire to break down any wall of hostility between the Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and all these new Gentile believers in the Greek churches. And it was Paul's goal to bring this financial contribution as a peace offering, so to speak, to say, look, they care for you. The gospel has changed the Gentiles. 
and to bring them together as one. So let's go back to our text now and look at these last four verses. I'm titling the sermon, Paul's Theology of Prayer. So as we read these four verses, see if you can discern what Paul believes about prayer. Verse 30, now I urge you, brethren, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be rescued from those who are disobedient in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may prove acceptable to the saints, so that I may come to you in joy by the will of God and find refreshing rest in your company. Now, the God of peace be with you all. Amen. So today's sermon outline is very, very simple. First, we're going to look at how Paul requested prayer support from these believers in Rome. And then we're going to look at how the story of his trip to Jerusalem played out. And we'll see exactly how God responded to his prayer. So let's go back to verse 30. Let's look carefully at this now. He says, I urge you, brethren, by or through our Lord Jesus Christ, and by or through the love of the Spirit, to strive together with me or to join me in my struggle in your prayers to God for me. Quick note, just as an aside, you see the three persons of the Trinity in that verse. They're all there. Fundamentals of prayer, right? Who do we pray to? To God, best understood here as the Father. We pray through Jesus, who here is called Kurios, or Lord, and we pray through or because of the love of the Holy Spirit who resides in us. Really beautiful language here, right? All three persons of the Trinity. It's funny, you often hear cultists say this in conversation. They say, well, where is the Trinity in the New Testament? It's all over the place. And this is really a great example of one of many. If Jesus isn't God, and if the Holy Spirit is just some impersonal force and not a divine being himself, right? Then it would be heresy for Paul to speak this way, would it not? To be praying through a man, just a man, to be praying by an impersonal force, this would be heresy. Highlight, underline this verse as a great passage to show to your Mormon and Jehovah's Witness friends. The Trinity is right there. Now, it's important to take note of the tone of Paul's request in this verse. This is not a casual ask for prayer support. You know, sometimes we do that. We're like, yeah, I got a tough week ahead. Will you pray for me? Sort of a casual, hey, if you remember, could you throw up a prayer for me? This was not one of those things. This is not casual at all. He says, I urge you, brothers, urge you to pray for me. This is the Greek verb parakaleo, and we've seen Paul use this in the, such this, this really, really important verse, Romans 12, 1. Do you remember? He says, I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice. I urge you to do this. It's important. And now he uses the same word again, parakaleo. This is a word that carries a sense of importance and a sense of urgency. He says, I exhort you to do this. I implore you to do this. I beg of you to do this. Brothers and sisters, at this important hour, as I go back to Jerusalem with this gift for the saints, I beg of you, will you pray for me? Now, why such urgency? It's very simple, because Paul knew exactly what he was getting himself into by going back to Jerusalem. He knew what he was up against when he got back to the old city. He would need divine protection from all the people that lived there that sought to crush this spreading Christian faith. In fact, what he needed was God's protection from men who were just like who he once was, right? A persecutor of the church. So Paul knew the game. He knew exactly what he was going to face because he had been one of those persecutors. 
And remember, the anti-Christian forces that lived in Jerusalem, their hatred of Paul was very, very personal. Remember, he was once their champion, right? He was once the guy that led the persecution of Christians. And now his betrayal, his not only going over to the enemy, but now becoming a follower and a leader of this thing that the early church called the way. This deeply irritated the elite of Jewish society. Here's how I like to think about this. If you've ever really loved a pro sports franchise in your life, like you've got a team, right? And you have a player who you love, he's been there for a long time, and just your love, you feel something like this on a very small scale. Think about this. A player, you root with this, for this guy with all of your heart, and then one day in free agency, he leaves your team and he goes to the rival team. Right? For me, it'd be like Clayton Kershaw leaving the Dodgers and going to play for the Giants. Devastating. Am I right, brothers? Okay. That would be devastating. Well, this is, again, on a small scale, how the Jews felt about Paul. He was a traitor. He was once their leader and their champion, and now he's gone over to the other side. Keep in mind also that by this time, several prominent church leaders, Stephen, the Apostle James, had been murdered in the city of Jerusalem by forces that hated the Christian faith. So this was a dangerous trip that Paul was planning. He knew it. In fact, he'd be tipped off to it in the coming weeks. In Acts chapter 20, we read that as Paul is saying his farewells to the, the elders in the city of Ephesus, farewell, and they understood this forever until they meet together in heaven, he said to them, bound by the Spirit, I'm on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. And so with all this potential danger and all this uncertainty about this trip, it shouldn't surprise us that Paul has such urgency when he speaks to the believers in Rome. Please, I beg of you, will you pray for me? So, as we're looking for Paul's theology of prayer, notice this very first truth. Paul was convinced that the prayers of these other believers were indeed important, that their prayers for him would make a real difference in the outcome. Do you believe that? Do you believe that your prayers impact the outcome of events within time and space? If not, why pray? If Paul didn't believe that the prayers of the Roman saints would make a difference, why would he ask them to pray? Now notice two more things that Paul asked of these Christians in Rome. First, he asked them to strive in prayer. Do you see that word? Underline it. Highlight it. Strive in prayer. Agonizomai is the Greek verb here. It's a word that originally comes out of the world of athletics. This was something the Greeks knew a lot about, right? The Olympics and all. They understood athletic contests. We get our English word agonize from it. So it implies difficulty. It means to contend for something, to struggle after something. And in fact, it's the very same word that Paul uses when he says, fight the good fight of faith. This is the way he sees prayer. So this tells us something else. There's a warfare aspect to prayer. It's a battle. It's a struggle. we got to contend for it. This means that we shouldn't always expect prayer to come easily. You know, sometimes we think that. We think the Christian life is supposed to be easy. The prayer is supposed to be simple. Well, Paul says here, it might, it might be difficult. It's going to be hard work at times. We're going to have to struggle through it, especially when we're dealing with difficult circumstances or we're dealing with opposition from our spiritual enemy. Here's the good news. Paul also gives us another truth. Prayer is a great weapon in the fight. 
Prayer is a great weapon in the fight. He says in 2 Corinthians 10, it's a weapon not of flesh, but a weapon that is divinely powerful for the tearing down of spiritual fortresses. How often do we think of it that way? How often do we sit in our room and go, I don't know if this is working. I don't, it feels like it's bouncing off the wall when Paul says very clearly, no, this is a powerful weapon that can tear down spiritual fortresses because we have a mighty God who's listening. Because he's listening, because he has put this powerful weapon in our toolbox, we don't give up. And we ought not grow weary in the battle, but we should continue to strive and to struggle in prayer no matter how difficult. For Paul, because this trip was so dangerous and the stakes were so high, once again, he doesn't make a casual request. This wasn't a, hey, listen, um, hey guys, if you remember to pray for me, would you pray? Or A, if you feel like it, or if you have a little bit of time on your hands, could you say a prayer? That's not what he does. He says, this was, I implore you, battle with me. Battle with me in prayer. So question for each of us. When was the last time you did this? Were you truly agonized in prayer? Let this be a challenge to you. Were you agonized in prayer when you wrestled with it, when you labored over something before the Lord, when it didn't come easy, but you persisted in prayer because you knew that you have a great and mighty God who hears, who always listens to you, and that this powerful weapon is at your disposal. When was the last time you did that? If you can't remember, this is a good challenge, right? Paul's trying to tell you something here. Prayer's powerful. Are you entering into that? Are you taking advantage of this amazing tool in your toolbox that God has given to you? Last thing to see here concerning Paul's theology of prayer. Notice how he asked for the Romans' partnership in this. Again, verse 30, strive together with me, he says, in your prayers. Now, does that mean that if I'm the only one praying, God won't respond? No. Does that mean uh, if I only recruit three people to pray with me, but God says, you know, I really wanted five, so I'm not going to act? Of course not. Guys, we need to lay aside sort of our childish view that we sometimes have about prayer. Scripture is clear that our prayers do matter. And do, in fact, accomplish much. It's not about how many people we can recruit to pray with us. But Paul saw great value in this. He saw value in the encouragement that it brings, that the partnership of mutual prayer lightens the load for those who are going through difficulties. How, how, how much of a blessing is it to know that you're not alone in difficult circumstances, that brothers and sisters are there who will care for you and will intercede for you at the throne of grace? Paul sees great value in that. But most of all, I think this is the key. When more people pray and then God moves an answer to those prayers, God gets more glory from more people. Think about that. When more people are praying and then we see God move, we see answers to prayer, more people will praise his name. Ultimately, that is what God wants, his glory, right? From us, from his children. More people pray, more people's faith is increased. So in that sense, prayer was designed by God to be a team sport, and really for two reasons, one for his glory and two for our edification. So take advantage of it. So here's another question or a challenge. Do you have people in your life that fit the description of these praying saints? Believers who you can turn to, you know you can turn to them and you can urge them and say, brother, sister, I beg of you, will you pray for me? Do you have those relationships? Believers who you know will strive 
in prayer on your behalf, who won't give up because they know the power of prayer. They will continue to wrestle and struggle on your behalf. You need that in your life. Believers who can lighten your load and care for you in prayer, I strongly exhort you this morning, put yourself in a place where you can cultivate those types of precious relationships. When life gets hard, you're going to need them. By the way, if you, if you haven't needed really serious prayer yet in your life, it's just a matter of time. And some of you guys, older saints, you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't gone through it yet and you're like, yeah, you know, I haven't really seen the need for this type of urgency, oh, it's coming. Because that's how God stretches us and grows us, right? Through trial. And so when that time comes, you're going to want to have those relationships. You can turn to people and say, will you enter into this with me? May it be true of every member here at Oak Hill that we have a band of brothers and sisters who will come alongside of us and strive alongside of us at the throne of grace. Amen? So now we know more about what Paul believed about prayer. Let's look at his two specific prayer requests. They're both in verse 31. What exactly did he want prayer for? Well, first of all, he says that I may be rescued or delivered from those who are disobedient in Judea, from the unbelievers in Judea. He's speaking of the unbelieving Jews in Judea, that I'd be rescued from them, delivered from their hand, kept from harm. And secondly, that my service, which is that collection, that contribution that he's bringing Jerusalem, may prove acceptable to the saints, that it would be favorably received by them. So the request, really, if you break it down, two simple things is A, for protection, and B, for success in ministry. By the way, those are two things that Satan carefully keeps his eyes on. Those are two things that Satan pays close attention to because he'd like to disrupt and divide this, right? Know that that's true. First of all, to try to physically bring down a gospel missionary like Paul, whether that's by attack or by illness or some other thing. He'd like to do that. Secondly, if that doesn't work, plan B, to sabotage Paul's mission, to work to inflame the Jewish believers in Jerusalem so that they resent this offering that's coming their way. The enemy would love to do that. So Paul prays, hey, friends, brothers, sisters, pray against the enemy's schemes. We know how he operates, so pray against it. By the way, something else to see here. Notice that Paul doesn't ask the Roman believers to pray for the salvation of these unbelieving Jews. And this, this must have really been hard for Paul to acknowledge because, A, he, he loves to see people, see people be saved, and he has a great passion for his fellow Jews, but he doesn't say, pray for their souls. It's as if he's saying, look, they've had their chance. They've heard the gospel. He calls them disobedient in verse 31. So this mission he's going on, surprisingly for missionary and evangelist, is not for the lost, it's for the saints, to build them up, to meet their needs, and most of all, to break down that hostility between members of the early church. Make sense? Now, verse 32 is not really not a third prayer request. What it is is the desired result if the first two requests are answered. Look at verse 32. So that, okay, purpose statement, so that, if the first two things are answered, I may come to you, believers in Rome, in joy by the will of God. Be refreshed in your company. I love the picture that Paul's painting here. This is so cool. He says, now agonize with me in prayer. Later on, we'll rest together. Isn't that cool? Now I need you to fight alongside me. Later on, we can sit down and celebrate. 
what God has done. Isn't that sort of the Christian life in a nutshell? Both of those things, we wrestle and we rest. We do both together in the local church. It's beautiful, right? Life in this world is so often a battle. We labor and we strive and we struggle. We fight the good fight each day. And really it's that striving together in the trenches of our faith that makes a gathering like this so sweet. All week long, right, we've wrestled and we've, we've fought the good fight and now we come together and we rest amongst fellow believers and we celebrate and we worship and we get strengthened because we know the next battle is right around the corner. So what this is is a place where we can celebrate and then we can gear up for what's coming next. We both wrestle and we rest. As we get refreshed on a day like this, we gear up. I think God loves to refresh his people through his people. That's why we need relationships in the local church. That's why there is no such thing as a lone ranger Christian, one who is isolated from the rest of the body. We need each other. God refreshes his people through his people. So we need to be intentional about putting ourselves in a position where he can work through others in the local church. So again, find some brothers and sisters here at Oak Hill who will wrestle with you in prayer, and then we'll sit down and rest with you in celebration. Amen? So let's do this now. We've seen what Paul believes about prayer. We've seen what he's asking the Lord for, what he's asking the Roman Christians to pray for. So here's the big question. How did it all turn out? How did it all turn out? Well, guess what? You're going to find the answers to how it turned out in the book of Acts. Chapters 20 to 28 will tell you exactly what happened next. And what you'll see if you read those chapters is that God worked in ways beyond what Paul could have ever anticipated. Not always the way he wanted it to go, but in ways that were beyond what he could have expected. And this is usually the case, by the way, for us too, that God answers prayers, that he moves, but we go, I would have never seen that coming. Anybody testify to that? Good. We'd be wise to remember that. Every time we pray and then we struggle to say, what's going on, Lord? We would be wise to remember that as we pray request A, and then immediately think that answer B is coming. But then God gives us like answer R. And he does it in his extended timing. We'd be wise to remember that this happened to Paul too. It happened to all the saints in the Bible. Remember, God's ways are not our ways. We see dimly, right? God sees with absolute clarity. We have short-term tunnel vision. He has eternal all-knowing vision. So we submit to him, and we say, your will be done, Lord. So were Paul's two prayer requests answered? Yes, but not exactly in the way he was thinking they were going to be answered. Before I get there, before we recap the story, uh, let's remember this important fact because it's the basis for effective prayer. This is really important. We believe, as Christians, and the, the, the biblical record bears this out, that God has the power to change the will of people. You believe that? God had the power to change the will of those unbelievers in Jerusalem such that they would not harm Paul. And God had the power to change the affections of the Jewish believers in Jerusalem such that they would not resent but would gladly receive the contribution that was coming their way. We call that sovereignty. He does as he pleases. God had all the power and all the authority needed to answer Paul's two requests by working in the hearts and the minds of every single human being involved in this whole situation. That's how he works. 
And listen, there would be no point in praying to God if he wasn't able to do these things. True? It's funny, many Christians object to the idea of praying to a sovereign God. They say, well, what's the point of it? But the reverse is actually true. Why would you pray to a God who isn't sovereign? If God's plans were subject to limitations, subject to man's will, don't waste your time praying. Go persuade men. True? But if God is sovereign, then he's the one you want to come to to affect change, to affect an outcome, to bring it to him subject to his will. Paul knew these two things. A, God is able, and B, prayer is powerful and effective. And so he prayed, and he asked others to pray because he knew those two things. By the way, the fact that the Roman believers were a 1,000 miles away and they didn't know any of the people involved in Jerusalem made no difference whatsoever because God's able and prayer is powerful. Do you really believe that? This is a really good question. Don't answer out loud, by the way. Do you really believe in your heart of hearts that that is true, that prayer makes a difference? Because it probably is borne out somehow in your prayer life. Now, sometimes we're just lazy in prayer. Sometimes, and I'll just say this, if you're a sovereigntist as I am, sometimes we get lazy, we just say, ah, God's got that. And it's true. He does have that. But he wants us to come and pray. There's power in prayer. So sometimes it's laziness, but oftentimes it's doubt that causes us to neglect our prayer life. We're not really convinced yet that prayer makes a difference. So we doubt that God cares about us. I mean, why would God care of all the billions of people? Why would he care about me? We doubt that he listens to us. We doubt that he, he hears us. We doubt that our prayer will make any difference at all. So if that's you, and I get it, I've had plenty of moments in my life where I've felt the same way and I've doubted and I've gotten lazy. I get it. But if that's you, let this text of Scripture renew your thinking because God is able and prayer is powerful and effective. Amen? So prayer request number one, let's see what happened. Would Paul be rescued from the disobedient, unbelieving Jews when he got back to Judea? Well, last Sunday, I promised that we'd try to answer a really important question. Did Paul make a mistake by going to Jerusalem? Did, God, did Paul sub, stubbornly refuse the Holy Spirit, say, no, Lord, I'm going anyway? Because a lot of people believe that. They've looked at the text. They say, well, Paul made a mistake here. In Acts 21, we're told that as Paul was on his journey towards Judea, he arrived in the city of Caesarea, which is along the northern coast of Israel, and a prophet came to him named Agabus. And he came to the place where he was staying, and he said to Paul, point blank, this is what the Holy Spirit says. The Jews in Jerusalem are going to deliver you into the hands of the Gentiles. So how should Paul respond to that? Notice, Agabus didn't say the Holy Spirit says don't go to Jerusalem. Didn't say that. He just said if you go, the Holy Spirit tells me this is what's going to happen. That's an important distinction. When the people heard the prophet say that, how did they respond? They panicked. No, Paul, don't go, don't go. So it wasn't the Holy Spirit telling him not to go, it was the people. And you can understand why they love Paul. Who wants to see their brother beaten up or arrested, possibly executed? So we probably would have responded the same way. But isn't that another example of how limited our vision is? The prophet just said, look, if you go, you're going to be arrested. And so in that same chapter, Acts 21, we read that Paul did indeed travel south of Jerusalem, 
And when he entered the temple, a great stir was aroused. Not a surprise, correct? Right? We talked about it. Paul's, Paul's the traitor. He enters the, the temple of all places and it creates quite a stir. And a mob sets upon him right there in the temple courts and they drag him out. They have every intention of killing him right there on the spot until God intervenes. How does God intervene? Verse 31, Acts 21 it says, while they were seeking to kill him, a report came up to the commander of the Roman cohort, cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. Okay, so if you've ever been to Israel, you've been to Jerusalem, you know the Antonia Fortress is right there off the Temple Mount, and that's where the Roman cohort stayed. They could have looked down into the temple courts and seen what was going on. There's this, this chaos, this riot that happens. And this commander hears about it. He says, at once he took along some soldiers and centurions and ran down, ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they, the Jews, stopped beating Paul. And so this Gentile Roman commander saves Paul from death by having him arrested and taken away. Now, who would have seen that coming? This is God answering prayer. How? By directing the will of human beings. First of all, someone willed to run and tell the commander, hey, there's something going on down there. Second, the commander willed to take that report seriously and go down and look. And third, when the Jews saw that they were now outmanned by these soldiers, they stopped beating on Paul. All the wills of these people in this story were under the sovereign rule of God. So the evil was restrained. Paul was rescued just as he had asked for prayer about. And those, those Roman believers a thousand miles away got their answer to prayer. Paul was rescued. Now, was that how he drew it up? I mean, right? When he prayed, do you think that? He said, this is what's going to happen. I'm going to get beaten up in the Roman court. No. No, he wouldn't have thought that. It's true that his life was spared, but now he would spend the next four years as a prisoner of Rome. He never would have drawn that up. But Agabus was right. He had prophesied that he would fall into the hands of the Gentiles. And of course, four years in prison. Think about this. This is going to completely throw off his desire to get to Spain by way of Rome. Talk about frustrating for an evangelist and a church planter. And so we need to remember this in our lives when we pray. And things don't go like we think they're going to go. And we shake our fists, say, Lord, aren't I doing all these great things for you? Aren't I a godly person? Why do you do this to me? It happened to Paul. Let's remember that. Remember that God's sovereign plans for his people are not always easy and not always comfortable. Quite the opposite. Oftentimes they're difficult. They're a trial because God wants to grow you and stretch you. Prayer request number two. Would the contribution he had collected from the Greek churches be acceptable to the Jews in Jerusalem? Well, it seems we have a pretty clear answer on this one. We don't, we don't have a lot of biblical data. But again, in Acts chapter 21, verse 17, Paul says, After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren, that is the Jewish believers, received us gladly. That's great news, right? They received him gladly. Now, having said that, the account also tells us that this wasn't easy, it wasn't immediate, that there were still some Jewish Christians there that were leery of Paul. I don't know about this guy. He, he speaks against the law of Moses. He, he, he puts aside the traditions of Judaism. I'm not sure about this. But again, God intervened, and God did something. He raised up James, 
right? The brother of Jesus and the other church elders there in Jerusalem. And they intervened on behalf of Paul. And they advised Paul about how he could win over these Jewish believers by demonstrating in a practical way that he wasn't an enemy of Judaism or the traditions. I don't have time to go into that whole story, but that turned the tide. The wisdom that James and the elders had to both advise Paul and to intercede for him with the Jewish believers there, God worked it out. He works in mysterious ways. God works in the wills of human beings to accomplish his purposes. What about the result? Did Paul finally make it to Rome and be refreshed in the company of the Christians there? Did he make it to Rome? Yeah. But wow, you talk about going way off course. You talk about being completely mind-blown about how God is going to make this happen. He never would have drawn this one up. This story does not have a traditional happy ending. If it were a one-hour drama or something, it'd be like, what is going on? This was not the traditional. Here's how you picture it. If this were a Hallmark movie, right? Paul would have been rescued. The saints would have been so overjoyed by all this. And then he would have bid them farewell. Goodbye, friends. And gotten on the boat and sailed into the sunset towards Rome and everything would have been great. It's not the way it happened, though. It's not a Hallmark movie. By the way, do I need to say that? Life is not a Hallmark movie, despite what my wife thinks. I'm sure Paul would have liked a Hallmark ending, right? But God had other plans. So it's reported in Acts 23 that a plot was hatched by a group of zealous Jews who said, we take an oath to kill Paul as he's being transported through the city. But again, by God's sovereign hand and by his grace, that plot is uncovered. And God once again rescues Paul. And he's transferred to the city of Caesarea by the authorities, where he's now going to appear before Festus and Felix and King Agrippa. And he's going to go through all of these sort of politically motivated trials. Man, two years, he sits in a jail in Caesarea waiting for his case to be solved. Can you imagine how frustrated he must have been? He's like, Lord, all I want to do is go and evangelize for the kingdom, and you've got me stuck in a prison. So frustrating. So what does he do? He begins to fear that there's a backroom deal being made between the Jews and the Romans. And so he says, I appeal to Caesar. That was his right as a Roman citizen. I appeal to Caesar. So they said, to Caesar, you will go. He's going to make it to Rome, but not how he thought. Not in the way he intended, not the way he planned. Didn't make it there as a free missionary with all kinds of time and energy to, to share the gospel. He arrived in chains in Roman custody. And it reminds me of Proverbs 16:9, right? The heart of man plans his ways, but the Lord establishes his steps. Can you remember that the next time things don't go well? Next time you're stuck in a place and you're like, Lord, I don't get it, will you trust God with that? That he'll establish your steps even though you have plans? So important. Now, is there a cool ending to this story? Absolutely. We often miss this in the text of Acts 28, the last chapter of, of the book of Acts. After leaving Caesarea and taking this long journey across the Mediterranean Sea, again, in Roman custody, on a ship, there's this harrowing shipwreck that he survives. Then he gets bitten by a poisonous snake. Thank you, Lord, right? Keep bringing the trials. 
right? I mean, this is not easy. Acts 28, 14 says, and you get a sense that Luke's given a deep breath. He goes, and thus we came to Rome. I mean, the story, I don't have time for the story, but it's crazy. They got to Rome, and it says, and the brethren, the brothers in the church at Rome, when they heard about us, came from there as far as the market of Appius and the three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. Man, catch that. Paul met with a delegation from the church at Rome. The very people who he had begged to pray, strive for me in prayer. He said, I urge you, I implore you, I need your prayer. And he says, if God is so gracious to to answer that prayer, someday we'll meet and we'll be refreshed together. And here it is in Acts 28, 14. It just took a couple years and a little bit of prison time. They went to this inn. They sat down. They enjoyed refreshing time together, even though he was still chained to a Roman soldier. So add this then to Paul's theology of prayer. God's will and God's ways are quite mysterious to finite creatures like us. True? Man, we think life is going to go one way, and it proves to be very different. We think it's going to be easy. We see it in our mind's eye, and then it gets really hard and uncomfortable and challenging and full of trials. We find the Christian life is an already not yet proposition. True? We're saved, but we're still struggling. Frustrating. We've been delivered, but sin is still clawing at our soul. We have the victory, but every day is still a battle. God's care and provision don't seem to match our expectations. Troubles and disappointments continue to plague us. Tragedies continue unabated. Even among God's people, people like the pilgrims, tragedy. We pray, but then we don't see obvious answers. And sometimes we have to wait so long to see anything at all, and it gets all really confusing. Now here's the encouragement in all that. If you've identified with that, you're like, yep, that sounds just like my life. Here's the encouragement. This is the way it's always been. And you say, Jeff, that doesn't help me at all. You know, that doesn't make me feel that much better. Listen to me for a second. Paul, in my mind, historically, I'm going to set aside Jesus. This is the greatest Christian to walk the earth. Right? In the eyes of God, greatly favored. Given the privilege of seeing and hearing the risen Christ. Giving, being taken up into the third heaven. Given visions that were so great that he was not even allowed to share them with anybody else. It's a special man. And what a life, right? Full of glorious achievements for the kingdom of God. A blessing to an entire generation of Christians and church plants all over the Mediterranean world. Special man. But his life was also filled with affliction and pain and loss and disappointment. We read the text and we see friends deserted him. Enemies tried to kill him at every turn. His ministry work just wore, him, wore his body physically out. And in several cases, he had incredible victories in evangelism and church planning, and then it turned into a nightmare of betrayal. Paul. They betrayed Paul. And along the way, he had to endure this personal struggle to live a life worthy of the grace that he'd received as a, a one-time persecutor of the church. He had all the struggles and more that we have. 
And like everybody else, he had to make plans for his work, not knowing the future, planning things out, and then asking the Lord to bless those plans. I have no doubt that Paul prayed with diligence, with great passion, but friends, things didn't work out for him at every turn like he thought. God had other plans. And so I say this to encourage you, if that happened to Paul, and if it's an example given to us, then can we rest in God's goodness and trust in his sovereignty even when things are difficult? Knowing that it's always been this way, even with a guy like Paul and all the apostles. But we're children of God. Things should be easy for us, says the immature believer, right? And we shake our fists. We're like, we're so American, so spoiled. No, things, I, I give, we, we actually say this. I give so much time to God and the church. Things should go well for me. I'm entitled to it. Now, we don't always say that out loud, but in our hearts, we do that, don't we? We should be successful at everything we do. We should all be healthy and wealthy and comfortable. All of our prayers should be answered just like we ask them. I think Paul would say to us, really? Try being locked in a prison for four years when all you want to do is share the gospel of Christ. Try that. And it reminds me of how the story of Job ends, right? You probably know the story. When Job begins to question God's sovereignty, his rule over his life, and God basically says, okay, Job, come on over here. Gird your loins and let's talk about this. In fact, you know so much, you instruct me. God says this to Job. You, you instruct me. And so he asks a question. What does he say? Hey, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Can you imagine being challenged with that question? Tell me if you have understanding, Job. Who set its measurements since you know? And goes on, God goes on to ask Job question after question. He just overwhelms him with so many questions about so many things that he can't fathom until finally Job says, enough, I get it. Job says, I've declared things I didn't understand, things too wonderful for me that I did not know. But now, he says, my eyes see you, Lord. And I repent in dust and ashes. Whew. Friends, know this about God. And I'll, I'll wrap up with this. Know these things about God. He is absolutely sovereign over everything. And that includes every circumstance of your life. He has decreed all that shall come to pass from the beginning to the end. And then within the time and space that he created, he works out all things according to the counsel of his will. Utterly sovereign. And at the same time, he's also declared in this love letter that he's written to us, your prayers are powerful and effective. Ask and you shall receive. So we're not fatalistic robots believing that God is somehow limited or that believing that our choices and our prayers have no meaning under God's sovereign rule. Neither are we open theists believing that God is somehow limited by our choices or he's waiting on our prayers in order to move. Neither of those things is true. Here's the bottom line. God will accomplish all that he has purposed, and not only has he ordained the result of all things, but he's ordained the means of that result. That's such an important principle to understand. Put in a simple context is this. If God ordains that someone will be saved, he will sovereignly arrange for someone to share the gospel with that person. 
He will work in the wills of that person to go and share the gospel. He's utterly sovereign over that. Sharing is the means. Salvation is the result. Both of them are controlled by God. Make sense? In our text for today, we learned, if God ordains that Paul's life is going to be spared in Jerusalem, he will arrange for the pagan commander of the Roman cohort to step in and save his life. Both the results and the means are the results. So then why pray if God is so sovereign? Ah, This is where the rubber hits the road. So God's going to make all these things happen. Why pray? Well, I could give you a couple answers. Number one, I could say, well, God commands you to pray. And that's true. That should be enough, right? But I'll give you more. I could give you this answer, which is also true. Because in prayer, we deepen our relationship with God. We come humbly before him and we declare our dependence upon him, right? And that's good our relationship with God. But in light of our text for this morning, here's how I see it. We should pray because God, this infinite, eternal, all-powerful creator of the universe, has said this to us. Are you ready? He said to us, you, my child, you matter greatly to me. So much so that I would send my son to suffer and to die for the forgiveness of your sins. That's how much you matter to me. So much so that he, my son, would willingly be nailed to a cross for the joy set before him to bring you and many other sons and daughters to glory. You matter greatly. And here's the key. My child, your prayers matter to me. Your prayers matter to me. In fact, I will ordain your prayers as the means by which I will carry out my eternal decree. Can you imagine that? Does that not move your heart in tremendous ways to know that this all-sovereign God says, you matter to me so much that I am going to use your prayers, which, by the way, I will bring about in you. I will change your affections. I will cause you to want to pray. You'll pray out of your own choice and volition, and then I will ordain those prayers to affect the fulfilling of my decree. Wow, that's your God. That's the God that you serve. That's the God that you worship here this morning. Here's what it means, bottom line. Your prayers, subject to the will of God, of course, they shape the world that we live in. They shape human history, your prayers, and even beyond. When we're talking about salvation, they shape the eternal destiny of certain individuals, our prayers for all eternity. Because God is good, because he's sovereign, because he's able to do as he pleases, and because we are his children and he loves us, think about this, the amount of transforming good that you and I can do through prayer is immeasurable. Because of him. Not because of us, because of him. Friends, there are divine opportunities all around us every day. Divine opportunities here at Oak Hill, in this community we live in. What's required? A people who will strive in prayer. That's what we take away from this passage. God will listen. God will hear. God will respond. He says, my child, come to me. Deepen your relationship with me. Come to my throne of grace, and I will use your prayers to affect my will. Isn't that amazing? Let's do it now. Join me in prayer, will you?